always believed that everyone has a story and that everyone's story has value. I'm Joanna Pena Bickley, the host of Designed By, a new Designed By Us documentary series that recognizes the changemakers, imagineers, and inventors in steamed science, technology, engineering, arts, math, and design. As I have traveled the globe and collaborated with some of the world's leading scientists, artists, and mathematicians, I know that daring to design the future today all begins with a vision and a narrative of a hopeful future. I invite you to join us on a journey of discovery, finding the voices and magic makers, changing the very shape of our future. I couldn't be more excited to introduce you to my friend and muse of many of my inventions and ideas, believe that one or not, to the one and only Faith Popcorn. Faith is a futurist, a best-selling author of The Evolution and The Popcorn Report, and a CEO, and in my opinion, a designer of destinies. Faith, welcome to Design By. Oh, thank you so much for that gorgeous introduction. I never thought of myself as a designer of destinies. I'll have to put that in my title. (laughs) You know, for the longest time, um, I have used aspects of futurism to maybe not necessarily predict, because I'm not really great at predicting futures. I I like to chart a a road to the future that we want to to get to. But I think one of the things that uh, after we met, you know, I walked away, my heart pumping, going, wow, I found (laughs) someone who does what I do and and has taken it to such another level of of, um, being right a lot. One of the things that I think that um, you suffer from is being right a lot, you know, yeah. and I think a little bit about it from a place of, you know, you in the eighties predicted cocooning and here we are, yeah. right? Here we are in 2020 in a full on cocoon. Yes. Um, 1982, we said that people would start to, you know, stay home more and like kind of hide under the bed more and look for comfort. And we called Martha Stewart at that time, the queen of cocooning. That's her, is her favorite trend. And uh, we watched it as it morphed You see trends. Like we have a 17 original trends uh, or truths. You could call them uh, that haven't really changed, but they have morphed. So cocooning morphed into the moving cocoon, which was like the minivan it's, you know, spread a lot of new products. It uh, morphed into the armored cocoon, which were defense systems, the edited cocoon, the filtered cocoon, and then the complete cocoon. And in our recent work for Comcast, you know, we talked a lot about, you know, home education and all of this we have been writing about, you know, home medicine, we've been writing about for years, but I call myself the original marketing masochist. Because we are nine, and I believe me, I mean, many reporters have checked this out to make sure I wasn't like over exaggerating or just exaggerating, but we have been right 95% of the time in what we said was going to happen. And we have been believed 20% of the time, I would say. And, um, you know, that is gets a little tiring after a while. Uh, so, and it hasn't really changed that much. 
It really hasn't. It, it no. becomes really interesting that that we live amongst so many skeptics. Well, you know what people, well, you know this, of course, people hate change. And if they don't didn't think of it themselves, they don't believe it. And there are not that many people like Elon Musk uh, who understands that, you know, while Rome is burning, planet is burning, he's going to do planet jumping. That's what he's all about. And he's all about understanding. He wants to understand what people are thinking, which is a little terrifying because I think he's on his way to that. And uh, there, 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 there aren't many, we call ourselves applied futurists, meaning, look, I'm cool at a cocktail party because like, what's going to happen, you know, and then you can engage people for hours, right? But Elon Musk and I, we do applied futurism. What's going to happen and what does it mean to a specific, in our case, company brand strategy? And he does, what does it mean? What can I build? So, yeah. So, you know, instead of just talking about the future, I always think about um, that uh, there are always indicators that began in the past. And I would love to understand, and I'm sure that my audience would, uh, which is a basic question. Where did faith popcorn come from? Oh, uh, I came from the future. <laughs> I know you did. <laughs> I, um, I was um, born in the East Village. I'm a sixth generation New Yorker. When I was about one, my father had gone to Shanghai uh, in the army as the head of the uh, it's called the Criminal Investigation Division, CID, which later became the CIA of Shanghai. And my mother took me to China when I was like one and to join him. And then we returned when the communists came in around six years later, uh, after a quick trip around the world back to the East Village. That was some swirling trip. I mean, I'm 100% Jewish, but I was raised in a convent. Uh, a Sacred Heart Convent, because my parents thought it was, you know, the security was better there. So I was went to school every day uh, and was, you know, taught by the nuns. I got an excellent education, which definitely fell away when I got back. So I was a Jew at a Christian school. I was a Caucasian amongst Chinese. And my father worked for the CIA. So that's kind of a twirly childhood, uh, to say the least. And uh, that's where I came from. I was born Plotkin. And, um, you know, I was never that comfortable with that name. It didn't, it felt too heavy. And then when I was 21, I got my first job in an advertising agency. And my boss, who was Italian, his name was Gino Constantino Garland, a very Italian art director. He said, what is this Plotkin? Oh, popcorn. Let's just call you that. That's how simple that story is. <laughs> and then I thought, you know, that does sound better. Okay, and I uh, changed my name to Popcorn. And some people say, "Oh, you must have done deep studies and name analysis." And I did nothing but follow like my boyfriend in a way. He was my boyfriend too, of course. Uh, and became a Popcorn. Love it, love it, love it. So nothing deeper than it just stuck. <laughs> well, yeah, it it it's memorable. It's poppy. It's as a matter of fact, all my kids in my life call me Poppy, you know, like the flower. Yeah. And uh, yeah, it, it was the right name for me. So um, 
my daughter, though, I, I adopted two Chinese children and you can see why, you know, I thought I was Chinese and that I guess stuck somewhere in my subconscious. And uh, my elder daughter, her name is Georgica, Gigi. She said that she wanted to change her name back to Plotkin. I go, oh no, really? <laughs> so uh, uh, she didn't get around to it, but she was like, you know, trying that out. So I thought that was kind of interesting. The circle just keeps going around and around. It does. And I always think about it this way. What really is in a name? You know, we are so much more than the names that we come from, but often um, it's actually the, the name that takes you to the next place. So talk to me. It seems like you started on, you started your career on Madison Avenue you know, how did you, you know, we talk about uh, evolutions, but what was the faith, the faith popcorn evolution um, from Madison Avenue to where you are today? Well, you know, uh, my parents were both lawyers. My mother was a lawyer uh, in the 30s, 40s, 30s, 40s. I guess she graduated law school. Yeah. And um, she was a negligence lawyer, which is another then called ambulance chasers. And my father was a criminal lawyer. Um, he was like a jailhouse lawyer. And of course, they they both went to NYU Law School and they were determined that I would become a lawyer. But my father, you know, I would have probably because I adored and worshiped my father. But my father died in a mysterious car crash when I was, um, let's see, 19. Hmm. So I jumped off that lawyer thing and I took an advertising course at visual arts, um, because my boyfriend at the time, Alan Kupchik, uh, was an art director and he was at Gray Advertising. And so I took this course and the woman that was giving the course said, you know, would you, would you ever want a job as a copywriter? Because I think you're kind of good. And I said, sure. Yeah. Because I had watched Breakfast at Tiffany's a few too many times. And I thought, oh, very cool. Like, you know, I'll be in advertising and I'll I'll be like uh, I'll be like Doris Day, and I wore big hats and and uh, what do you call it like uh, organza coats over linen dresses and had a long cigarette holder and you know I got into advertising that way uh, and told my mother I was not going to be going to law school which she, she wasn't absolutely thrilled about so you know I I worked out of my um I you know I worked in a couple of agencies. I got a little, a little bit disillusioned because I, I, I didn't think they were serving the clients properly because they were just trying to get them to buy television commercials and advertising for the present. And um, I, I was always thinking they should think, you know, further down the line, what's going to happen and how the product would evolve and what people would be wanting. I was always very curious about what's next. And um Eventually, I made myself unemployable. I was asked the most obnoxious questions in big meetings. And I started my own company. And it was called, you know, Brain Reserve, which was a reserve of brains, which was the first really cartel of like futurists. Um, I, I gathered 10 of them that I knew, and we would brainstorm together and get, you know, small pieces of business, but I didn't get a piece of business really for years, maybe 10 years. I was one of those people that went out to dinner with anybody I could find. And 
you know, I didn't really have any money. And um, eventually, maybe it was my name. I was working out of my studio apartment. I was paying with credit card uh, debt. And um, eventually, somebody interviewed me from the New York Times, mainly because they were curious about my name. They said, uh, they were really, I said, well, you know, what would you like to know? And I prepared a lot of thinking about if I had any clients, what I would advise them because I didn't have any. Mm -hmm. And really they were there to think about my name and why I chose this name. And I told them a fanciful story, which I was sure they would never print, which was that my grandfather came from Italy and his name was Corne. And when he came to immigration, they said, what is your name, sir? And he said, my name is Papa Corne because he was older. (laughs) And I said to them, this true story. I said, I shortened it to popcorn. And that's how I got my name. And they printed it. Maybe that's why they've never printed anything else I ever said. But um, they didn't do their research very well, right? Clearly not. (laughs) You know, that's what I said. So Today's episode is sponsored in part by Design By Us. Designbyus.org is a civic media and public service design cooperative on a mission to create equal and equitable representation in science, technology, engineering, the arts, math, and design. We call that STEAMED. All you have to do is go to your phone or computer and type in designbyus.org and explore how public works and productions educate, equip underrepresented communities with a hands-on STEAMED experience they need to prosper in the global job market. So let's help Design By Us advance inclusive, equitable, and a prosperous future for over 10 million women, girls, and underrepresented communities with a donation. Take a moment and visit designbyus.org forward slash donate. That's designbyus.org forward slash donate. Yeah, I got that from my father. I don't know. Yeah, maybe, maybe, I, maybe that that part of it is the the argument of nature of what it means to be the child of a lawyer. I understand completely because I am the child of a lawyer. We have that in common. Right. Uh, <laughs> uh, well, it, was there a lot of arguing at the dinner table and stuff? Debate. It was very debate. rarely. We never looked at it as arguing. It was always like a factual debate. Um, uh, you know, so, uh, and it, it made me a greater. I think always made me a great debater. And what I found was when I left New, uh, when I have left New York, uh, or at least my dinner table, you know, I was not born in New York. I was born in Texas. Mm-hmm. But when I um, when I left, and why I enjoyed New York so much is because it is a community of debaters, right? Um, right, and we debate everything. Yeah, and I think I think it's also something just uh, sometimes part and parcel to to. Uh, you know, growing up at a Jewish table too, because it is in our DNA to debate. Yeah, it's it's Talmudic. Yes, it is. I mean, the questions that we ask, I'm always asking like, how do you know? And what do you know? And where did you get it? And what do you think? But, you know, we, although this is like focused on where I came from, the way I predict is where people are going. And I go to the far future, like 10 years down, and I do a backcast to the present, so you can figure out what's going to be 10 years down easily. 
But the timeline between now and the 10 years is what makes success or failure when you're consulting with a fortune, you know, 200. Mm -hmm. So we back us to the present and then we try to draw a timeline and say, is it going faster or slower? You know, machines will take over people faster, slower, which machines, you know, will, you know, will there be people serving in, in fast food, you know, uh, places? No, there won't. Which ones will go first? Uh, stuff will come to you again, cocooning. Um, you know, uh, it's, it's just, just the timeline that mm -hmm. makes our advisory, you know, to say, you see, they measured me about how accurate I am. Totally mm -hmm. accurate. Timeline is a little bit more difficult and also getting a company to believe, you know, what you're saying is very difficult. Like I remember like, you know, 10, eight, 10 years ago, we were consulting for Campbell's soup and Doug Conan is my just bestie. I love him. He was the chairman. And we said, Doug, you know, goodness is coming. People are going to look at companies and want to see how, you know, if they're good and if they're behaving well and you're the good company and you, you know, I'm, I'm shortening a hundred page deck, but, you know, simply said, you, you are good and you should talk about goodness, goodness in your food, goodness in the way you behave, goodness in you, Doug, and how you talk to your people. And everything. Anyway, his people said, well, suppose something bad happens, a typical corporate response, right? And we said, you know, we will deal with that. We were going to do soup kitchens across the country um, using fresh ingredients, et cetera. And then unfortunately, Doug got in an awful automobile accident from which he never came really back. And that thing died. But there's an example of absolutely correct, absolutely right um, positioning and application and implementation and still so much resistance. And um, this is it, like Kodak. My God, we, can, we got fired from Kodak, consulting with Kodak. And we got this big assignment, big, big, big for us. And what's the future of film? And at the end of like 10 months and everything, all the interviews and brainstorming and every kind of machination and meetings and everything, we said, the future of film is digital. And they said, we did not ask you that. We asked you what the future of film is. I go, well, it's digital. And they said, will you stop saying that? It's what about film? I go, digital, you know? And then they said, would you excuse us? So they left the room and then they came back and they said, we, you know, we have no use for talking to you any longer. Just like the big meat companies, when I'd say, like a Tyson, I'd say futures vegetarian and they go, or vegan or lab grown chickens and beef and I, you know, the animal cruelty part and the processing part was coming in a while back. And they, you know, say like, are you gonna keep talking that way? You know, <laughs> are you gonna are you gonna keep saying the truth? Are you gonna keep talking that way? So it's not yeah. like I'm saying you're gonna ask me later what my favorite curse word is, but I mean it's not like I'm coming to the conference going, fuck, fuck. I'm saying, you know, vegan, that's all. But to them, it was as bad as. And um, I, you know, truth to power, truth to not power, just like the truth the way we see it. And uh, that I've told so many, you know, plant-based now is finally here. Are people adapting it? Not really. Mm -hmm. Look at the big food companies. Are they? Not really. 
you know, are, you know, is it, I think it'll be like absorbed, like taken in by the masses, you know, more faster than by the, the masses faster than by the people with their master's degrees, their MBAs. Um, I think people are realizing planet can't support it. It's mean if you've ever seen anything killed, you know, and I think I, I went that way because my kids went that way primarily. And I saw a film in France once about how people, it was like a protest and they held up screens. One screen was how chickens are processed. One screen was how cows are processed and uh, you know, every other kind of like, you know, little animal form. And I thought, and things don't happen to me that way, or most people go, well, that's it. I'm not eating that again. It wasn't hard. Right. You know, maybe someday I'll go back to it when they grow it in a lab and it's really not an animal. It's just cells. That would be okay. It's interesting that you say you were influenced by your children. Uh, I too was, uh, I have, you know, uh, both millennial and Gen Z kiddos. Um, and, you know, they had, they realize what they're inheriting and they, you know, it's interesting. Uh, so many of the, the predictions that you made 10, 15 years ago, you could start to see coming amidst this right. generation, but how very upset they are. Um, yes. They, and have the right to be. <laughs> did they turn off, uh, did they turn you off meat and stuff? Yeah, they, they absolutely have. And, um, you know, so I have, you know, Gradually, you know, they they were the first to jump into it, and so because we were feeding them, you know, uh, you know, healthier alternatives, uh, and <clears throat> while they're not completely vegan, vegetarian is you know where they're at, and you know they eat fish. Uh, I like eat them. fish too, uh, but I went fishing recently uh, about a year ago or something, and I saw they catch these fish and they slam them over the head. Cool. You know, so I don't know, you know, uh, it's look, I mean, in the scope of things, like, is it the most horrible problem we have? No, most probably, you know, I mean, we're burning the planet up and we're, you know, starting to bomb each other again. This is really bad. Yeah. Yeah. Well, but to, to your to your fish point, we're overfishing. Where you know those are we we look at the problems in our oceans, and you know yeah. the, uh, we it all has a cyclical part and is connected. So yeah. I want to go back to I want us to go back into um, you know the idea that one of the things that in some of the stories that you've told us today, I mean you you've come up with some really bold predictions, right? And they're always ba- baked. Uh, I'm sorry you have come up with some bold predictions and they have always been backed by data, Uh, right? It is, you're not necessarily reading the tea leaves per se, because when I have read any of uh, the brain reserves reports, what they're doing is looking at the signals, right? And those signals uh, come in different forms of data, you know, and and the uh, kind of the the bold influencers who are trying things. And so- you know, here you are, you formulate this company, it's called the Brain Reserve. It's a, you know, a cartel of futurists. Um, You know, the early days obviously were super hard and you get, you know, you get uh, effectively, you are coming in and sharing not just with the future of, 
you know, maybe that industry might be going through, but often hard truths. Where did you find the courage to walk into, you know, a boardroom and tell them the, you know, the future of film is digital or, you know, one of my favorites is you just talked about, which is a meatless future to the poultry industry. Poultry and beef. And yeah, I don't know if I, I never thought of myself. Would you say courage or courage? Yeah. Yeah. I think it's a pretty courageous thing to be able to feel like you have confidence. I, I don't have a lot of confidence. I think I'm not that confident and I'm not that, you know, what do you call it? Like sure of myself or whatever, but I am sure of what I'm saying. And I'm, and I, as I said, I'm oppositional. It doesn't bother me to walk into a room and go, you think X, well, guess what is Y and let me prove it. And I can prove it circumstantially. That's what my father taught me and my mother taught me about circumstantial evidence. You Mm -hmm. can prove something circumstantially if somebody is at all interested in believing it. So when we're done with the deck, somebody will, you know, present like a final after a year's work, they might say, as one client said recently, oh, that's so apocalyptic. And then three months later, COVID hit and they go like, how did you know? I didn't know. That was just what I was thinking was going to happen. Actually, I thought it was going to be a little slower. My timeline was off because I didn't think COVID, you know, COVID compressed it. And then all of a sudden, you know, I was brilliant, but not, you know, really. It was just what I was seeing. You know, uh, like the Cassandra, the story of Cassandra. Am I right? You, you, she, what Apollo got mad at her and took her eyesight away Mm -hmm. because she didn't uh, sleep with him. So typical. And then uh, she, but she always told the truth, you know, truth. She was the truth, the blind truth teller. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think that I, I'm not as successful. You asked me later about the McKinsey's and I'm not, maybe as successful as I could have been, certainly not as rich as I could have been uh, and not as, you know, what do you call embraced as I could have been. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, I, I called it the way I saw it. And historically I've been right. The past doesn't prove the future certainly, but I'm usually right. It's just always amazing to me that nobody else can see this. We, we told P&G in 82, 83, don't worry about Walmart so much because everything's going to be home delivered. Nobody's going to want to go to the filthy supermarket. And then we talk to supermarket people and they go, well, isn't that how women socialize in the supermarket? And you're like, really? You know, no. Uh, and we still here. Please tell me that was, that. wait, wait, please tell me that was a male who said that BS. Oh, definitely a male. <laughs> Definitely. And I will tell you, they still think that they still think that women love to go to the supermarket. You know, (laughs) nobody. I mean, I actually love to go to the supermarket because I find it very relaxing and I love to buy. I'm the queen of backup. I love to buy backup. You know, (laughs) I'm the only person who's had soda go bad because it's so old because I've (laughs) had so much of it. Like That's hard to do. (laughs) <laughs> that is hard to do. Yeah. <laughs> oh, wow. 
Um, <clears throat> so, you know, you, you've talked a little bit about, you know, what it has taken, you know, years to, to build this brain reserve today. You know, it went from, sounds like 10 futurists. How many futurists are, are we in? 10,000. We have as many as like, we, it's a loose consortium. Mm-hmm. You know, we have teams. We get assignments that have guardrails, like least, one of my least favorite expressions. Uh, they have guard. You, you have to tell us like what is, you know, where is food going or where is beverage going and what does it mean to us? Or where is, you know, this uh, fast food company going and what does it mean to us? So we, we, we do have that, but part of our DNA and our IP is two things, uh, a 17 lens tr- trend bank, but a truth bank. Where if you had an Oculus and you could look through all 17 lens, you would see the future in detail. And then on the other side, we have 10,000 futurists and we pick out, let's say, six or eight on an assignment and we wrap them around the assignment. Go like, what do you see? What do you? And the futurists in my case here are not the dreamers. They're the makers. Mm. So it allows us to be early. So like gene editing, we were talking to gene editors, not not genes that you wear, but, you know, the kind, you know, DNA genes. Um, in 19, maybe 80s, mm-hmm. early 90s, they were tinkering around with genes and people would say, oh, isn't that going to, this is so scary and that can't be true and it's going to be illegal. It, it could be illegal here, not yet, but but that doesn't stop the rest of the world. And I was so scared because it sounded Aryan. Mm-hmm. You yeah, know, isn't everybody going to want a blonde, gorgeous, thin, tall, German looking child, uh, you know, no, you certainly, you certainly, I remember, you know, in the eighties where, you know, when it, it really began and they were just tampering with sheep, right. It, it was right. The, the cloning Dolly. of sheep. Right. Yeah. And, and <clears throat> but if you step back for a second and you say, okay, gene editing, and then you look at, Oh, wait a minute, the genes of a virus. And so it, it's right. interesting to, to be able to see that it's very easy to imagine a dark future um, sometimes, because I think that, you know, often we, we focus on the dystopian um, and don't look at the reality or the practical of how might that, how might that technology be applied in a pandemic? Yeah, yes, exactly. And like getting rid of cancer or, get, we, you know, right. we just think of it as blue eyes and blonde hair, you know, mm-hmm. but, I mean, gene editing. So that's why we're so early calling that. I mean, we took a bet in a way that these scientists would actually crack the code CRISPR and all. And uh, they did. We could have been wrong, but not everything was dependent on it. It was going to eventually be right. Absolutely. Absolutely. When you're coming up with, um, you know, I I always look at it like a a version of the future. Uh, You know, one of the things I love about your trend bank, it it reminds me so much of um, something that MIT has done for years, which is uh, called 12 Tomorrows. They, you know, they write a they, they write comics based on, you know, like future-based comics. Sometimes they're a little dark, sometimes they're utopian, uh, but the vast majority of them uh, try to predict where technology is going. Right. Um, talk to me a little bit about, you know, what it means to to write those futures, to to write the destinies, to to draft what may be a version of the future. Well, 
you know, our decks are made to speak in the language of the Fortune 200, which is usually a constrained logical path to where we want to take them. Our conversations before we you know, deliver are a little wilder and we see so clearly robotic companions. And, you know, I don't know if you heard about this book uh, um, called Clara and the Sun. It's by, oh, I'm going to think of his name, Tashi. Let me look it up because it'll drive me crazy. Uh, he wrote, he wrote, uh, Never Let Me Go. Did you ever see that? No, did I did you ever not. read that book? No. Oh, that's an incredible book. You want to know about put on my list. Okay. Yeah. His name is. Okay. Kazu Ishiguro. He wrote The Remains of the Day. Remember that? Mm, about of the course. Yes. He wrote Never Let Me Go, which was about a, a boarding school where actually they were growing clones, but they were like young kids. And they were growing them for body parts, but these kids had consciousness mm -hmm. and like, you know, what happened there. And then this Clara is about um, a young girl who gets a AF and you're going to hear a lot more about AFs, artificial mm -hmm. friend. Mm -hmm. And, um, you know, it deals mm -hmm. with a lot of, a lot of things. I mean, this becomes this teenager's really bestie. Um, everybody's going to want one of these. They're, they're, they're intelligent. They're sensitive. They get you, they know you, they help you. And it's going to be quite common. Now it does have its like for this, for the artificial friend, like it's a book about obsolescence too, mm -hmm. because, you know, these robots become obsolete and if they have consciousness, how much does that hurt? Right. Mm -hmm. So it, it, he just wrote this book. It just came out. Uh, I really believe in that. I believe that, you know, man and machine singularity has crossed. That happened already. Mm -hmm. And we will be, uh, we're in the middle of an evolution into a time where, it, you know, humans and machines won't be that easy to tell apart. Mm -hmm. And um, we'll be like enhanced forms of humanity which people may want to be right. and then there'll be supported forms of humanity you know like uh you know like uh the basic income principle which we'll have to support mm -hmm. you know, the new kind of welfare because they won't be enhanced it's going to have a lot of ethical issues but so do we right but it's definitely the way it's going so when people say like you know are, are the people, you know, how come stores are closing or how come, you know, people don't want to interact with people. They just want the stuff. Just give me the stuff. Stop talking to me. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> that is the beginning. The need that the companies call those, which I just hate. That's my second least favorite term, need states. Mm -hmm. That almost sounds like robotic, right? Yeah. So what are the need states there? So the need states is I don't want to talk to anybody. So the first thing was the cash machine, which everybody thought was going to fail, and it didn't. <laughs> right. Nobody liked tellers, really. And then uh, now it's nobody likes supermarkets. I don't want to talk to the checkout person and just give me what I need and give me what I need for the diet I'm on and then show me maybe what's new. But 
I don't have to go there. And by the way, people get shot at Walmart and, mm-hmm. you know, I don't want to be in that parking lot. And now with COVID, maybe I don't want to be anywhere. And it was just, even without COVID, rolling on. It was mm-hmm. happening. So I have the pleasure or the displeasure of seeing it. I can see it very, very clearly. I don't think, I think other people see it, but I think I accept it. Mm. I think other people fight it. I, I totally accept it. I think it's a really interesting uh, premise to to think about it as being able to, you know, see it, accept it, and then one of and the things I, and then apply it, right? That that it becomes more of an applied science because uh, to to the to the idea that you know the future isn't a matter of chance, that it's a matter of choice, right? Therein lies yeah. the application. I see. I see what you're saying. Yeah. Um, yeah, the application is really important, but you have to believe the premise to go with the application. Like I remember consulting with McDonald's a very long time ago, and we said, uh, you know, uh, there's nothing for females. You know, it's not great food. You know, you're going to have to make it better. We said nobody wants it. like find cash in their pocket. You're going to have to take credit cards. There's going to be license plate recognition. What about delivery, home delivery? And they said, oh, it doesn't taste as good. And we said, make it in the truck. And they go, oh, that's so hard. We can't. <laughs> and, like, and then with Kentucky Fried Chicken, we said, like, we didn't want to change the initials. KFC. Right. So we did Kentucky Fresh Chicken. Mm-hmm. kept the initials, which was cool. But then we had to get uh, all those franchisees to put boil- broilers in their thing and pay for them. And that was a, that took three years. Mm. Just that little thing. Yeah. That's why sometimes it's nice to have a dictator that goes, just put the goddamn broilers in there because people are not going to want to eat fried, you know, yeah. or some people. Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, you've had a, a, a remarkable journey. Right, you, you built a company. You've written books. You know, you are the, uh, you, know, you have the ear of CEOs of the Fortune 200. <clears throat> um, in that journey, what is what, some of the things that you've been most proud of? Uh, well, I don't know. I was the first, maybe. Mm-hmm. You know. Fortune sweetly called me the no, that's the only sweet thing they ever said about me, but the Nostradamus of marketing, the original futurist, that was good. I was able to bring my friends along and, you know, a crew of like really unemployable people who, you know, we could work with and we codified a whole new way of working. Um, I, developed really the an original expert network of futurists. I don't think anybody had done that. Um, like we would go, like one of our futurists, I remember um, he was a, like a naturalist and he was getting medicine out of the forest, you know? And, um, you know, we, we, we worked with him. We talked to pharmaceutical companies. We also have supported artists and spiritual gurus and, you know, microbiologists and, um, you know, they always have a friend in us. We always listen and interested and try to connect them if they need money. So I guess that's in my work. That's what I'm most proud of. The thing I'm most proud of in my life is my children. And, 
and my friends, you know, I have really fab friends. So, you know, on that journey and, you know, amidst all of, I think the ups and downs of what it means to, to build a company and to build a, you know, group of, as you said, you know, incredibly un- unemployable people, but have become right. a cartel of futurists um, mm-hmm. that have the ear of big CEOs Um you know, when you have, when you look back on it, what were some of the sacrifices and trade-offs that you, you had to create to get some of these ideas out and and to, and to build a company? Well, um, people didn't understand our work or want to understand it. They thought I was sitting in a phone booth somewhere with a crystal ball and a martini. I did always have a martini, but not a crystal ball. And, you know, I had to fight very hard to show them that the methodology was right. Um, also, my personal life was really crap. You know, I, you don't have time for a personal life if a chairman calls you at 7 o'clock in the morning on a Sunday, especially if you're a female. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I worked seven days a week. I never took vacations. Uh, I did it the old-fashioned way, I guess. And I don't like vacations very much. So for me, that was like not a sacrifice, but a good excuse. And, you know, it was just like work, work, work. It's like just, but I love to work. Mm-hmm. It's not work. It's observation of the culture and the future. You call that work? You, you know, every movie you go to, every book you're reading, every person you're talking to, it's all part of this, you know, kind of... Uh, Penelope or tapestry of what's going to happen. It's like, you know, really cool. So if you look at it as a sacrifice, I don't know. I never belonged to any clubs. So I didn't miss not being in the boys club or the, you know, corporate club or the, Mm -hmm. I I wouldn't know what it's like to be in a club. And that seems okay by you, right? It was like, eh. Well, yeah. I mean, now I think, you know, what do they do in there? Like, you know, <laughs> what do they talk about? I'm kind of curious. Um, whatever they talk about when it comes out the other end, it's not that interesting. But I don't know. I, I think men are, are having a big struggle now. I think they're the most vulnerable of the species, Mm-hmm. I think that they're lost. I think some of them are like hanging on like crazy and trying to like, you know, stay viable. I'm talking more impersonally, you know. Yeah. Who are they now? What are they? I don't know. Well, it's actually something you explored in the evolution. Right? Yeah. It, it was yeah. certainly something that as you looked at, uh, you know, l- let's put third wave feminism aside for a second I, you know, when uh, you go back and you take a look at the evolution uh, and the predictions, what we said was, you know, the the rise of women and the rise of, of but I think even more female characteristics and the acceptance of those female characteristics yeah. as leadership, which was um, a wonderful, um, you know, kind of primer to the place that we're living now. But you're also... But one of the things I think that also explored was potentially the backlash of what would happen in that space. Yeah. That I think that we're living through right now. Definitely. Atriums of evolution. So 20 years ago, I wrote a book that explained that men and women have a different language 
and think about things differently and use their peripheral vision more than men and 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 uh like uh don't buy don't you know they 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 bond with brands they don't buy brands and those i mean it's probably maybe one of the best not best selling certainly but best books i've ever written you know in these eight truths you could lay them on any single product right now and see how many they don't that product or that thing doesn't meet mm-hmm. where's female snack food where's female banking where's the female credit card where's the respect for women you know like it's st- I, i'm almost thinking it's going backwards mm-hmm. so um yeah. So it's an interesting thing because you, you say, where's the female credit card? And that one's that, you know, within the financial services arena is where I think, you know, it has been, it was certainly drawn to my attention when Apple uh, got together with Goldman Sachs and released a new card and uh, men and women were applying uh, in droves, like, right. Who, who gets excited about, a, you know, the entry of a credit card is when Apple pretty. does it. Right. Yeah. Um, and, but in, in that, the discovery, it was a, a new aha to the inequity that existed. And, um, and if I remember correctly, it was one of the Apple founders' wife who, you know, he said, I'm unemployed and she makes more than me. And yet I get more credit for just being a male. Yeah. Yeah. And so Where here we it? are in 2020, you know, same, 20, same. Yeah. Let me tell you something. Nobody's going to hand it over. Right. It's going to have to be a revolution. I know we hoped it was an evolution and people would come to their senses, but it's the same thing. Um, <clears throat> Jane Frazier, is that her name? Mm-hmm. <coughs> so Jane Frazier just took over Citibank. Just about. I think she just did. And I'm curious to see if there's going to be a difference um, banking is so male run, so male directed. And when women are making all the money in the world, more than men, more educated than men, more, more, you know, in mm-hmm. everything, they can have a baby. They're interested mm-hmm. in diversity. They work well in groups. And yet they are not on top of the heap and they are not spoken to in the right way. Where, yeah. Where's the, where is female? finance. Let me just say it is nowhere. And the Apple card is not female finance. It's just very well designed. Yeah. Card. Pretty. Uh, No, absolutely. Absolutely. By no stretch of the imagination is it, is it? No, then, you know, just asking you why, why do you think why? Right. (laughs) You know, I, I've always looked at it as that, you know, the, the access to credit is about power. Um, it is about growth. Companies yeah. that have access to credit uh, grow, and they are able to invest in capital, um, both in the people and then the hard capital. Um, and there is active discrimination amongst yeah. you know you know uh, in the banking community, uh, not just of you know minority women, but women of color. Oh and my so God, that, that's even worse. Right. So. It is a method of keeping us from that power. And why right? do you think, you know, and, but do we, you know, I mean, this black thing is everything that anybody is going to want to be is black. Mm-hmm. It's right now. It's starting now. Um, 
companies are waking up oh so slowly, so slowly that black consumer, the male and female different from each other and different from white. And there are not going to be any whites. We predicted that like probably in the popcorn report in 1980. I mean, the whole country is going to be brown. So how come nobody's paying attention to this? Because they're hanging on to, I guess they're hanging on to power, wouldn't you? I mean, would you want somebody in the boardroom that smells differently than you do, that looks differently, that cries, just talking about women? No. You'd want as a human animal to just have people people like yourselves in that boardroom and who think like you and, you know, act like you and laugh like you. I mean, in a way, Donald Trump, I can't even believe I'm saying those two words together, uh, showed us, and just in case we didn't think so, what they're really thinking. Mm -hmm. He showed us, he said it out loud. No, no, but absolutely. No, the interesting thing is that we talk about so much of where he lied about things, but in reality, he couldn't have been more truthful. Yeah. <laughs> right. And well, he lied about the election. Just the absolutely. Thing. Like <laughs> th- that's a Hitler-esque lie. Like I think yeah. we could both agree, you know, given our backgrounds. Yeah. But no, he didn't the, lie about how people felt about women. That's right. Um, he and, he, and he didn't lie about how he felt about women either. No. Oh. Of course, he showed us time and time again. And what's really interesting to me has been how people didn't believe him when he told them the first time. They didn't. Uh, You know what? I I think when we remove ourselves outside of the bubble of New York, um, you know, at a time when, and I think you've touched on it, right? And, And you touched on it in your book, an evolution of what was happening, but the white, you know, that white males would become extinct and it is a survival mechanism that they're right. utilizing that that fear that is driving with them that it is uh you know the extinct the fear of extinction or irrelevance the last thing right. a, a, man, a man wants is irrele- <laughs> irrelevant yeah right right um it is with that you know that he played that tune and, and it and it played really well because he too, what was really interesting to me was if you stepped outside of New York and you understood, you, you tried to understand where people were coming from. And uh, one of the best books I think written on this pre-COVID um, was written by um, Paola Ramos, who is a journalist hmm. with ICE. And she details um, one of the things like, how could you be a Hispanic for, for Trump? And you know, the answer to the male said, you know what? He comes from the calle. In Spanish, that means the street. Um, he speaks Hardly. like he's the street, that there's a street smarts and that it was something attractive, that it, w- it was in opposition to the elitism and, and really in opposite to, to so much. But it came down to this one thing, um, which is, you know, you just like, wow. Uh, a, a mad marketing genius that he was able to paint himself like that to those people. Yeah. Yeah. You and I both know as New Yorkers, he ain't that. No, he didn't <laughs> come from the street. He came from a pretty rich family, but he's, he's rough. And he, he, I, I'm, I'm convinced he has a learning disability, a processing order. Yeah. Or, uh, you know, disorder where he can put a sentence together. It's not his fault. It's not his education or his intelligence. 
he can't retrieve his retrieval is from positive. So he just, he knows like 12 words and he uses them and, you know, over and over again. I think people like are also have a lot of self hate, Mm -hmm. you know, and especially those kind of people that follow him. Mm -hmm. And I think that he gives them approval. So he goes, it's okay to be like an idiot. It's okay to be prejudiced. It's okay to want to hit and be violent. Uh, you know, he get and especially women. My God, how can any woman believe in him? But that's really self hate. Yeah, it really is. You know, no, it is. So I think he captured that. So let's talk a little bit. Let's let's take a shift into you know you've spent uh, many many years, which is really exciting. I think it's a testament to your truth, and it's a yeah. testament to you uh, having the ability to be right a lot and, and and endure what it took for people to be able to look back 10, 15 years later and say, oh my God, she was right. Um, it takes a lot to endure that. Um, you know, in that journey, you know, during that journey along all the different machinations of what the brain reserve was and, and you personally of how you have evolved, um, who are the people that sponsored your progress and success along the way? Uh, Sponsored it financially or? Sponsored it financially through social clout. You know, how, how was it that, you know, clearly you kicked open the doors, but once you're in there, you have to make sure that uh, you, you stay in there and you get paid because that is the way that I think. Yeah. Right. Yes. Um, I think that there are a certain, you know, handful of Fortune 500, 200 chairmen or, you know, up there people, innovation people that really believed in our work and got us hired, but it was never easy. Mm-hmm. And um, some of my friends, like when if I, in the early days, if I'd run out of money, they, you know, give me some money. And I, I mean, of course I paid it back, but. Uh, my family, my sister always backed me. Um, my kids have no idea what I do, so I can't count them in there. Uh, I don't know. I guess my friends, you know, having fun helped me along. I'm a big, like, I love parties and I just also, you know, some recognition. I said, you know, I guess if people are writing about me, you know, maybe people are getting it. Makes me feel better. Uh, so what's kept me going is we have one standard. We tell people that in the beginning when they're just going to think of hiring us. And I was such a lousy student. I was like a C minus student. I don't even know how I got out of college, but Uh, We do A plus work. Mm -hmm. And when we write down what we're going to do, we exceed it. And it doesn't have to be A plus. I mean, it has to be A plus in our eyes, but it has to be A plus in that client's eyes. And we always asking, is this A plus to you? Mm -hmm. You know, all along we're pain in the butt. Like, is this A plus? Are we, is this A plus thinking? Are you like, you know, really proud of it too? And a lot of like, it's wonderful. Some of these young people like, when they think about their career, they think, 
wow, the work we did together was phenomenal and it lasted and it held and, you know, making them very proud of it. So it's beyond getting hired for, you know, money, Mm -hmm. having an ethic of really answering the questions, really doing good work, really being right. Um, really putting the extra time if we didn't bid it out properly, which is usually the case because who can tell how much something is going to cost? Uh, I don't know. I guess that people, you know, like fearlessness. I try not to be, I've toned down in how I deliver. Uh, I just think it gets absorbed better. And that's, I, I, I can't think of anything else. Cool. When you look at things today, what inspires you? Well, you know, the water. I lo- I live on a pond in in on the weekends, a country pla- little place. I love I love water, the ocean and my good friends inspire me. A great book inspires me. I watched the Billie Holiday thing last night. That is so sad. You know, U- uh, U.S. versus Billie Holiday. Brilliant, right? Just yeah. sad, but... <clears throat> but still the same. Yeah. They targeted this young woman, Black, yeah. who was so talented. And one guy and his pals decide they are going to destroy her because she's singing about lynching. Mm-hmm. Gee whiz. She died at 44 years old. And I, in, at the end, they said there was a lynching law in 37, I think, that came up before the Senate, mm-hmm. an anti-lynching law, I should say, and it didn't pass. And it's still not passed. Came up again in 2020. Mm-hmm. That's kind of crazy. But anyway, that kind of thing, I don't know if you could, when I get angry, I get inspired. You know, that is like a spark for me. I get like, what you know? This cannot happen. Yeah, no, uh, I, 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 uh, I actually have been there. I can absolutely mm-hmm. relate to it. I look at the injustices, things, and um, and it gives you a moment to to step back and understand. Um, we got a lot of work to do, and if yeah, if you we want to give the world, you know, give a, a better world to our children, we've got to figure this stuff out. We're not going to figure it out. Nobody figures this kind of thing out. We're just like going to be have a, like a, they say a revolution. Mm-hmm. It's got to be forced on people. They are not going to figure it out. It's not to their benefit. Yeah. So you don't figure out things that are going to end your life and your career. If you're a fortune 200 company, you don't figure out the competition that's going to destroy you. Mm-hmm. You just try to keep going as long as you possibly can and say, people don't really need good food and they don't mind cans and they don't mind that the lining of, you know, some, like, uh, you know, like packages, like give you cancer or stop sperm production or in trying to end the evolution of the human race through some of these chemicals, mm-hmm. you know, how can, what are they going to figure out? Oh, you know, <laughs> right. <clears throat> sure. So what are the books you're reading today? Well, um, let's see. I'm such a stack of books is so overwhelming. I told you I was reading that Clara in the Sun. And I'm reading that book about 
Charles Blow's book about taking over the South, that the Blacks are going to go back in and take the South over. I'm reading about Black futurism. Um, um, I'm also, you know, writing an album. You know, I was on this talk show in South Africa, virtual, and, you know, they ask you that question. They ask on talk shows, what's the one thing you always wanted to do that you never did? And there was a whole panel. And I said, I've always wanted to write a rock song. And this woman was on the panel and she says, oh, she was like the most famous pop star in South Africa. Her name is Corinne Zoid, Mm -hmm. Z-O-I-D. And she said, I'll show you how to write a rock song. I go, really? So we got together virtually and actually we're almost done. We're writing an album and it's an album about the future. And that's been inspirational because it's using a different part of my brain Mm-hmm. No music and lyrics. I like lyrics. So, um, and she's a very good lyricist. So that's been inspiring. Um, and I don't know, like I read everything, everything I can like, get my hands on. I'm reading a catalog right now that nobody has ever heard of. I'm sure. A catalog. I'm I mean, like, catalogs. really like a printed a catalog. catalog. A catalog in paper. Oh, look at yeah, that. Yeah, right here. It's called Uline. <laughs> and it has all janitorial products in it. And I'm mad for this catalog. So the best, like, disposable things and the best, like, rubber carpets and the best picnic tables and the best, uh, I don't know. Some of it's a little too much for me, but. You're taking hyper hygiene to a new level, my friend. I'm taking what? Hyper hygiene is to a new maybe, level. <laughs> maybe best stickies and the best tape and the best everything. I I didn't say I buy everything in it, but right. I, 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 why do I find it so relaxing? I bought this little wheel thing. It's great to you know because to move things around. Absolutely, I could see so, that. Absolutely. Anyway, I love that. <clears throat> and then, um, yeah. So you were gonna say yeah. That. No, so, you know, this is where we got a little bit more rapid fire questions, which is, you know, around the, you know, you, you talked a little bit about who your favorite authors are, um, yeah. which is really exciting. Um, what about your favorite artists? Well, I love, well, Basquiat came from my neighborhood. I love Basquiat. I love outsider art. Uh, I love cartoon art. I love tattoo art. You know, I love the Japanese, you know, manga. Did I say that right? Mm-hmm. And I love Issey Miyake. I call him an artist. You know, I used to wear uh, Comme des Garcons, which is Rei Kuakabo, Kawakubo. As a matter of fact, I have a new dog. I have a Japanese chin. I've always had Japanese chins. I named them after these designers, like this dog's name, Ray Ray. And I had a uh, Tokyo. I had, um, um, after like, um, who did I have? Just ma- name them after like, uh, designers, Japanese designers. And I used to love Comme des Garcons until somebody told me, why do you dress up like a bag lady? But I don't know. I just did. And of course it was somebody from Palm beach that said that. So, Yeah. Gotcha. So as we go into the rapid fire, talk to me about what is your 
what is your favorite word? Uh, my favorite word, well, the word <clears throat> I'm using most is robotic. My favorite word is hope, love, belief, all those, you know, kind of corny words. Children. When I hear the word children, that's my favorite word. When I hear the word little children, you know, tots, toddlers, mm -hmm. sippy cups, <laughs> uh, those are my favorite. What's your least favorite word? Oh, I have a list. It is what it is. Oh, my God. No, it isn't, I say every time people say that. What a give up thing, you know? Yeah, it is. It is what it is, or like, you know... You know, got it. Got what, I say. You know, and people say, I gotcha, meaning, I don't mean to say you say that, but, you know, just like mm -hmm. people use it like randomly. I go, do you really think you've got me? I mean, do you think you, now I would say maybe you do get me, but <laughs> you can say gotcha, but, you know. So what turns me on is like the getting up in the morning and not being like, Turning up in the getting up in the morning, go like okay, like you know, my uncle was a, I think one of the only Jews at Annapolis, and he would go go get him, you know, and I feel like that, like get up and do it, not every morning, but most, so, you know that, and uh, yeah, what turns you off? No, the word or we're not doing that, or we not ready for that, or call me later in the year, or uh, <clears throat> people that talk to me for an hour, but have no intention of ever, you know, embracing our work or hiring us. Uh, people that humor our work because they think it's the right thing to do. Uh, hypocrisy. Oh, I'll tell you what turns me off the most. And I never thought about this before you asked is cowardliness. Mm. cowards I, I I try to understand like I know you have a mortgage to pay and all that but <clears throat> people that are really cowards and people that are hypocrites and people that um, pin the blame on somebody else like bullies and manipulators mm -hmm. and there's a lot of that in the Fortune 200 people taking the rap for somebody else's mistakes you know mm -hmm. I hate that so what sound or noise <clears throat> do you love or enjoy? I love the sound of my Japanese chins. I don't know if you know what they look like, but they have like pushed in faces, like a screen door hit them in the face, like really pushed in more than any dog you've ever seen. And at night they snore really loud. And I love the sound <laughs> of snoring chins called Japanese chins. I love that. They go start snoring and it just like puts you right to sleep yourself so delicious. What, uh, what sound or noise do you abhor? I hate the sound of vacuums. And it just drives me crazy. I think that comes from my childhood. Maybe somebody was always vacuuming. It's <laughs> a horrible, horrible noise. Yeah. What's your favorite curse word? Fuck. And if you could do anything else in the world any profession, <clears throat> what would you like to attempt? 
I want to be a private eye. I've always wanted to be a PI and like track down criminals. And, you know, I never understood why they didn't recruit me for the CIA. But, you know, when I got my father's Freedom of Information Act thing, you know, you can request it. Mm -hmm. It was all redacted. So whatever he did, maybe that's why they don't recruit me. I thought I would be absolute perfect cover, you know, being in the CIA. You know, they do say to you, would you shoot somebody you didn't know? And you'd really have to trust, as they call themselves, you know, the organization to shoot somebody and not know why. That would be hard for me. Um, But I'd love to be a private eye. What profession would you just stay away from? I'd hate to be an accountant or anything with little, like little writing, little columns, spreadsheets, uh, you know, granular work. Uh, I'd hate to be a ditch digger, a mine, you know, like being in the mines. I always feel lucky because I think I do very clean work. You know, I'm not like... Mm -hmm have a big shovel and digging down. I think this is, feels like boutique <laughs> not to have to do that kind of work. Um, you know, you've always spent so much time uh, sharing what the future would be for other people, but if right. you had the opportunity uh, to go back 10 years and give yourself some advice, what would, what would future faith tell, uh, tell faith? <laughs> Well, I'd say it's going to be all right would be one thing. Get a business partner, you know, one of those really uninteresting business people and get married. You know, I've never been married. This I know. Yeah. I forgot. I was like that T-shirt, oops, I forgot to have a baby. So like really late, (laughs) I adopted these kids and then I'm saying, oops, I forgot to get married too. Shoot. It would be fun for a while. I don't know. I hate not having done something that's so, in a way, commonplace, but it could be nice. Although I don't know any, or I don't know very many, I should say, happily married people. But that's because they think they have to stay together forever or they don't let each other breathe. I mm-hmm. think I know how to let somebody breathe. I hope. Mm-hmm. I think so. I think so too. So what motivates you at the end of a day? Oh, well, I usually have a beer or have a martini. That's very motivating. If I have friends over, because I'm not a lone drinker, maybe I have more than that. You know, we have like cocktails that motivates me and we chat. Uh, TV. I love TV. I watch TV all night. I know it's a bad habit, but I do. So you don't suffer from insomnia from TV. You just enjoy no, taking it in. No, you right to sleep. <laughs> um, if heaven exists, if there's this place that we call heaven, um, what would you like God or the deity or what would you like to hear when you arrive? I'd love to hear, now you can rest. I will take over the future. Mm. I will take over what's next. That would be nice. That's beautiful. I would say like, so what's next, God? 
What's going to happen? Just take it easy. I have a Jewish God, so his Jewish accent. <laughs> take it easy. Have a, like, you know, have a potato pancake and I'll take over. <laughs> <laughs> that sounds like my kind of God, too. Yeah. <laughs> um, if there was one thing that you learned on this remarkable journey, um, you know, of being a uh, a futurist, uh, being a best-selling author, a mom, and a CEO, and a designer of destinies. What would that be? You know, I hope this. I think you'll uh, like in the long run. It didn't matter because not to say that. I didn't work hard and contribute maybe and all along the way, but it didn't matter because we are really a dot. We're just a teeny dot. All that struggle, you know, mm-hmm. just like, I think I see myself finally in perspective of maybe the universe, maybe nobody can, but as much as you can, all the worlds out there and the other suns and satellites and planets and we're a dot. So like, you know, don't, you know, take it easy, girl. Like, don't take yourself so seriously. And um, in a way, it's like, it makes you feel like crap. And in a way, it makes you feel like wonderful because it's so relieving. Like, yeah, it is. Yeah. And it's then, absolutely a relief to feel like the burden of the world isn't sitting on your shoulders. It's not. And, you know, it's very narcissistic. And I know I'm probably as or more narcissistic than the next person. But to say it's all up to you, it's not up. I've certainly learned it is not up to me. Things, like they say, shit happens. Things happen. I've been very, very lucky in in a couple of ways. I, um, my, the women in my family, my grandmother, my mother, they're all cowgirls. They were just like out there crazy my grandmother collected rents in seven languages, you know, she was just, you know, nobody was going to talk, you know, bad to her. She was tough. And my mother same. So, um, you know, I, I think that's where I got that. If you called it bravery, I called it just oppositional, like, you know, and then, you know, good things, amazingly good things have happened to me. First of all, finding this, uh, line of work. It really didn't exist. And I like kind of made it up and I made it up because I hate when people yell at me because everybody was yelling in my childhood, yelling and screaming and everything. So I thought, gee, if I'm a futurist, they can't really yell at me. Right. Well, I was (laughs) wrong. They, They certainly can. They do yell at you, but not as intensively, like, you know, really scream at you. So uh-huh. I was lucky to find the work and I was lucky to get the inspiration from my bestie who was a ghostwriter and writer on all my books. Her name is Liz Marigold and she adopted a Chinese daughter. Mm-hmm. Called me up and she says, we're going to China. I go, we are. She says, yes, my adoption papers have come through. I go, you're adopting what? So I'm adopting a little Chinese. I, I was so mad at her that she didn't tell me that's my bestie. But anyway, I did go with her and, you know, I saw Skype, she come out, you know, the nurse's arms and the elevator come out and I go like, oh my God, get me one. I was like, devil wears Prada. <laughs> I said to my, as you know, my, my chief of staff, my chief of light, Kathleen Cantwell, a fabulous partner. I said, 
I want a baby. Don't talk to me about it. Cause I was terrified, you know, that I'd have such be a horrible mother because my family is so screwed up and I, just don't talk to me about it. Just fill out the stuff, whatever you have to do. So she comes back like months later and she goes, well, there's one thing I can't talk about. What is it? That's how I used to talk to people before I had children. And he, she said, I can't go down and do the fingerprints for you. Yeah. Okay. Okay. I'll do that. And then they call me one day and they said, your daughter is, you know, like your daughter's waiting. And I thought, oh, I cannot do this. I'm not going to do this. I said, okay. Yeah. What's her birthday? So they said April 15th. And that was the birthday of Liz's daughter. Mm. And I went, and I, it wasn't the birthday of every Chinese child, which of course I checked out, you know, being healthily paranoid. I go, it is April 15th. Um, okay, I'll be right there. And I said to Liz, guess where you're going back to? <laughs> and she came with me and I got Georgica. And then Georgica, I told her, you're my boutique daughter. I used to dress this kid amazing. Just, I just mm-hmm. adored her. I kissed her to death that like when I come near her now, she goes, don't kiss me, you know? <laughs> like, you know, and and then she said when she was like around seven, I want a sister. Now that's mm. what I said to my mother when I want, I want a sister. And my mother didn't want to have another baby. And I want a sister and I want a sister. And finally, I got my sister, who I was just cloned to. Mm-hmm. And then when Gigi said, I want a sister, I went, I told you, you're a boutique baby. Come on. We don't, we're not doing sisters. So she said, I really want a sister, mommy. I'm so lonely. I said, lonely. We have a party here every four minutes. She said, you know, do you realize, seven years old, most of these people you pay to come, you know, you're paying these people. <laughs> and that's not family, mommy. I go, wow. You know, I go, okay, you just got yourself a sister. <laughs> That's a true story. It's true. It's not a story. It is so, it's so remarkable how children see through the smoke yeah. and the mirrors and the bullshit, BS. Right? Yep. And they pinpoint it and go, I know. Bam. I paid all these people. They were employees. They were, they were all to do with money and work, you know, and mm-hmm. maybe creativity, but it wasn't family. And she wanted a family. And they are so close. Mm. And when, when, when the big one kicks, Cece is a little one, Gigi and Cece, the alphabet girls. Cece is named after my mother, mm-hmm. Clara Cecil. And mm-hmm. my big one, Gigi, is Georgica, named after my father, George. Okay. So when the little one, big one kicks the little one out of her room, goes, get out of my room. And the little one goes, you can't say that. You wanted me. I'm here because <laughs> you wanted me. So I'm sitting right here. Okay, you're right. Okay, fine. So that's the little family we have. And uh, a wonderful Chinese lady that's been with me since Gigi was a tot, mm-hmm. 22 years. So I have a complete, and a Japanese dogs, which were originally Chinese, as my nanny says. So, you know, I have a completely Asian family. I was um, going to say you've created a pan-Asian, uh, like a, a an Asian microclimate. Yeah, I'm the only Caucasian here. And my kids told me I'm, I'm Chinese inside, so. Well, given your history, that makes yeah. all the sense in the world. You've taken yeah. a, you've effectively recreated the the best part of what you say your childhood was, which was yeah. being the only Caucasian in a, you know, in a uh, Chinese world. In a Chinese world. Yeah. And that's a pretty remarkable thing. One of my last questions is, you know, it, 
you are the original. You know, I, I, I have always said this, you know, whether, you know, I was at IBM or here at Amazon, I said, I love to go to the source because today futurism, you've seen a rise in, in the desire for futurism. Um, I've also seen a rise, particularly in the design world, around yeah. speculative. They, it has been calling speculative design. Now, you and I both know as, uh, you know, I've been practicing specul- speculative design as calling, you know, it was really about daring to design the future that you wanted to see today. Like at its core, you know, when you're a maker uh, and, you know, for me, it was always um not necessarily, again, I would be looking for the signals, um, but actually creating a narrative. And I think one of the, the crafts that you have um, is not only just predicting the future, but I think so much of what you do is creating narratives that can be believed in because narrative and innovation go hand in hand. Mm-hmm. So as the original, what would be advice to all of the aspiring speculative designers, future futurists that you would, what kind of advice might you give them? Well, I mean, on so many different levels, like one of the things about how to see ahead, as I said, is to look way ahead and then come back and then see what the development of the future will be. So I think that's one. And I think don't be afraid don't be afraid because you don't matter. It's another one. And um, cling, you know, cling to others. Like, you know, I had some friends that would like encourage me. One of my uh, good friends, his name was Robert Ken Moore in the 1990. Some publisher was like, you know, really chasing me. I went on a trip to Israel. The publisher was, the editor was there. I go, how'd you get here? It was like one of those, you know, bond trips. Mm-hmm. She was on this trip. She wanted me to write a book. And this uh, friend of mine, Robert Kenmore, said, write it. I go, I don't want to write it. And he'd say, write it, write it. You know, it'll package you. And, you know, I hate that word. It's horrible, but it did. It packaged my work. It made me come up with the the trends that I thought were going to continue. It made me, it gave me a voice. He was so right. Um, but, and Liz wrote it really. I mean, I, she was working in the company at the time, you know, so we thought it together, but she's a wonderful writer, you know, and she had my voice. I used to say she had my voice more than my own voice. Mm. So she, you know, we got it done. And, you know, so I'd say, write something, become a personality if you can, because that always like puts a few extra points on your scorecard, get noted. Uh, you know, I was an actor. I don't know. We didn't discuss that. I went to performing arts. I wanted to be an actress. Mm. And I did. I became one. No, I, um, you know, I wanted to. Yeah. My parents were not happy with that. And they made me go to college. I didn't want to go to college. So I studied acting. So be an actor. Make sure you can do speak in public. I used to throw up before I spoke. I was so nervous, you know, and I just did it and did it till I got like, you know, good at it. And uh, I don't know. What am I missing? What would you tell someone? (laughs) Have another drink. (laughs) Have another drink. Yeah. (laughs) 
That's the best advice we could give. Yeah, right. This too shall pass, says the futurist. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and with that, Faith, thank you. Thank you uh -huh. for for being an you know an extraordinary role model for so many of us. Uh, and I, I, you know, I, I spent time in marketing, but I, I've often said and believe that the work that you do actually goes to the heart of the way that a company operates and Thanks. has an opportunity to use those insights to to transform or prepare themselves for the unknown. Because I fundamentally believe that the cost of not knowing is far more than the cost of getting it wrong. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The other thing, like, that's true, but they all think I'll be out of here. I'll retire before that happens. That's what, you know. <laughs> but the other thing is show up. And these companies, they show up in court. <laughs> they show up in jail, but they don't show up as part of the brand, most of them. And I think that, People now want to see who's running that company, what they really believe, not talking heads, not gorgeous, you know, yeah, sure, gorgeous design and visuals, but I think they want to go to the heart of the company and know who's running that thing. And it's a promise between the, the head person and the consumer. Thank you so much for joining me on this journey today. I invite you to join us on the next episode as we discover the voices and magic makers changing the very shape of our future by design. Music.